Welcome to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, connecting you to all things outdoors. with episode 101 of the panoramic outdoors podcast and holy shit i am staring at the one and only sheldon grant the one and only right across the table from me today man it's been a long time Woo! it's about fucking time welcome back buddy i uh, just throwing out the swears right off the bat man we're in a pretty cool setting right now we're at uh, orbs appliance in nipah Shout out to Orbs Appliance. Thanks for the the podcast space. Yeah, no kidding. It's kind of a funny story. Chase came out to uh, do some deer hunting, and where my dad lives, the internet's not that great. So we had to come to town. We I know a guy. He hooked us up. Uh, beautiful spot, though. So if you're ever in Nipah, we're going to give him a quick uh, panoramic bump, we'll call it. But if you're ever in Nipah and looking to get some furniture or some appliances, Although his name is Orv's Appliance, he does have furniture and he's got like beds, mattresses, anything. So support your local shop. Come by Nipah next time you're coming through and check them out. I was uh, doing a little tour of the place here and there's some pretty nice, very nice furniture. Oh yeah, he's got a little bit of everything. And not only that, I think he's got like one of those online catalogs too where you can get basically anything you need. Yeah. Like anything you can get at a big box store, you can get it through him. So that's very, very cool to have in a small community to have that uh, feature right in your in your back door. Yeah, no kidding. So carrying on with the fact that we're doing a little bit of hunting here in Nipoa. Had a had a good good few days, seen some deer. Yeah. A couple nice bucks. Uh you had one opportunity to to let let an arrow fly. Yeah, that's right. We Chase and I kinda sat on the same type of field. Um and we kinda just quit like we're on kinda either end of the field with, with the right winds. And we kind of both just quit counting after like what thirty deer probably came out in the field. Yeah, it was at unbelievable. least it was yeah. unreal. Um, but yeah, closer to the end of the night, I kind of had it in my mind. I got this new uh, crossbow that I got from Heights Archery, which I'm going to come back to. But I got this new crossbow, and I thought, you know what, I need to to break it in. So the nice mature uh, doe came out. She was uh, what I'd say would be like a dry doe. She had no calves with her. Uh, it wasn't huge though, but it was an, it was a decent decent animal, and uh, yeah, took a shot at forty yards, and um, I think she ran about sixty yards and and died. So mm-hmm. it was a, kind of a a very happy night. We uh, slight quartering two shot kind of had a better arrow placement, tucked it in right behind the right behind the the fold there. Yeah, whatever you call it. Yeah, so. All, all in all, it was really good. So back to the heights thing. So if you listen to like, I don't know, five po- podcasts ago when I was on one, um, I got this crossbow through heights archery and um, I was away for work for about a month and a half now. So I haven't had much time to shoot it and I haven't had any time to go down and buy some broadheads and get some arrows. So I actually, kind of a cool story is that I emailed heights and I said like, look, like this is the this is the crossbow I got through you guys. I need to get some arrows and some broadheads. Is there any way you can get something together for me and I can get Chase to pick it up on his way out? And um, and within like 24 hours, they basically emailed me back and said, yeah, everything's ready to go. Tell Chase to come pick it up, which is like unbelievable, I think, for service. And then you guys, listeners, are probably like, oh, yeah, well, you know, you and Heights are like partners, blah, blah, blah probably thinking that's why they're helping me. I got a second story for you, Chase, is that uh, my friend Mel, 
was uh, went to one of their, or wanted to go to one of their like public like shooting court or not courses, but I don't even think they're lessons. They're just sessions, like mm-hmm. shooting sessions, where they kind of help you out and stuff. But she couldn't make it to any of them, so she took like a private lesson, and then she ended up like really like shooting bow. So she's like, I'm gonna go buy one. So she like contacted me, and we were talking about what bows to get asking me for like any kind of tips or tricks or whatever and i just basically told her you know go to heights um and just and just kind of have an open mind on you know if you if you have a budget that's fine but you don't have to spend your whole budget like there's a lot of bows that can fit you it can they can shoot well and they might be below your budget some might be above but just go and shoot a bunch so she emailed them and she's a shift worker she's a nurse so she told me that she emailed them and said, look, I can come in on Monday. They got like her, her height and stuff from her, like some details from her. And when she got in there, they had four bows set up for her. And so she got to like shoot these bows, um, spent like a couple hours in there with Jason, shot these bows, got a release, got the target or the, uh, sights, got a target. And she said like the experience with heights was unbelievable just because they didn't make her feel like she was a newbie. Like she, they made it feel like everyone there was new and we're all going through this together kind mm-hmm. of thing. So she like never like felt stupid, I guess. Yeah. So I think that's really cool. But, it, you know, Heights have been helping us out too uh, on the podcast, supporting our podcast. So if you ever, um, the same thing as Web's Appliance, it's a small shop, mom and pop type shop. So if you're ever in Winnipeg, go down to 2281 Portage Avenue. That's where Heights is located and go and check them out. They got a lot of cool stuff in there with its archery equipment um hunting equipment firearms ammo um they're they're getting into everything so the the like i said the customer service um and the support that you get from those guys is probably the some of the best in in this province of manitoba and if you can't get down there go check out their website it's heightsoutdoors.com yeah not only that too one little addition um you know you, you talked about the in-store service and i know tristan had been looking for a uh a upland vest and they were actually order, able to uh, special order him something in because they didn't have it in stock as well. So if you're looking yeah. for something specific, they might be able to get you what you need. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, really neat. Yeah. So dough down. Dough down. Dough down. I got a tag, one tag left for my buck. And um, now I can be a little bit more selective, I guess. Got some meat in the freezer so I can uh, maybe just wait it out until that special one walks by. Yeah, I'm curious on on your agenda here. The next little while you spent probably a solid month and a half away from home here yeah. uh work focused um got to spend some time in the bush though seen spent some time in some pretty cool territory but uh what what's what's your the rest of your fall here looking like are you do you have some time off now or is it going to be back to around the the regular nine to five gig for you for for a bit and then and then hitting the weekends or taking thursdays thursdays and fridays off what what yeah like the usually how my falls normally work is i i usually take time off in archery season and take a bit of time off in archery season so actually i never had any time off because i was working in archery season so now i'm kind of just planning on taking thursday fridays and stuff off i got some family coming out for the last week of rifle season so i'll probably take that week off um but I'm going to bow hunt as much as I can. Like, although I've been using this crossbow the last few sits, um, the weather has been actually very mild and, and, and nice. Um, like my dad was saying, like the first time in how many years it was October 28th and he was wearing no gloves Mm -hmm. for two hours or whatever. Right. Yeah. So in the tree stand, so it's been super nice. So you can definitely get away with archery hunting. You're not all bulky and stuff with, with winter clothes yet. So, but yeah, that's my plan. Probably hunt, 
you know, most of the weekends and take Thursday, Friday, Mondays off or whatever so I can get some days in. But yeah, um, yeah, I'm going to put, so I'm not going to take too much time off. One more week maybe. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's pretty awesome, man. I, I certainly enjoyed my my uh, my time out here. Not only was is it like I say every time, it's nice to see some new country. We seen a, a buttload of deer, which was awesome. Um, I unfortunately didn't have an opportunity to to let an arrow fly, but that's uh, that's hunting. Um, but the other thing that I enjoyed out here is you know you really uh, put on a put on a good grill, man. Yeah, speaking of grill, <laughs> how, what do you think of those Korean ribs? Have you ever kind of had? I call them Korean ribs, but I think they're called beef short ribs. Or yeah, I have, think. Well, have you had them before? Only time you've made them for me before, but I think it was a different recipe or something. But, oh, yeah. but they are uh, man, they're I and it's almost like eating a ribeye. Yeah, to be honest it, with you. Well, I think it's like the rib right before the brisket. I'm not too sure. I'd have to look it up on the um, beef anatomy or whatever they call it. But uh, yeah, it's it's really actually good meat, and it's connected to a rib. And they're really short, but I threw them on the pit barrel. Um, I got them from Obermeyer's and Brandon, so they're already like pre-marinated. But I threw them right on the pit barrel for a little bit, just kind of get that smoke, and then grilled them on some high heat. Man, they were pretty good. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. that pit barrel, man, it's so like versatile. Like I said, what I did was just put them on, put them on the pit barrel for about twenty minutes with smoke, really uh, low heat and smoke, and then threw them on the gas grill just to kind of crisp them up. Yeah. And I gave them a really good flavor. Um, Pipero has been supporting us forever, as you know, so we have to give them that shout out, but I truly love using it. Um, I don't get to use it as much as you guys because, uh, you guys are always on it, but if you guys, anybody that's listening wants to get into a Pipero and wants to check it out, you can message us. We can give you some, uh, some information on it, or you can go to their website. It's, uh, piperellcooker.com. Um, in the United States, they got free shipping in Canada. It'll give you a list of all the places you can pick one up. It's probably one of the best upright barrel smoking systems in the like freaking North America. They're super easy to use. They're inexpensive and, um, yeah, we use them all the time. So if you want to get one into one, go check them out. If, uh, if, if our, our, our words aren't good enough, uh, you know, I was, your buddy uh harbor there no no no. he's your buddy <laughs> <laughs> popped in and uh had a little visit yesterday and uh we were talking barbecues a little bit and he owns a lot of barbecues yeah he's only like five or six by the sounds of it yeah eh? yeah and he said if he only had to have one in the arsenal that would be it, it was the pit barrel just because yeah. it's so simple and you know it's robust and it's easy and it's amazing flavor so yeah it's pretty cool because he's got like the ceramic like the whatever they call Nick, the egg style. Green egg, yeah. Yeah. He's got like one of them. He's got, you know, probably gas fuel, electric smoker. He's got a whole bunch of different stuff. And like he said, if you go back to day one, you just buy a pipero. Yeah. That's, I think that says a lot. Exactly. Definitely. <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, and you, you, you getting your kids out into the blind a bit? We have been. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's been awesome um what's that one story about your kid on thursday getting mad at you yeah i uh, man I've, I've told that one uh you've probably heard this story about 10 yeah, times but i want everyone weekend. else to hear it because i think it's funny <laughs> but uh so i've been trying to get the boys out as much as i can and uh i i left to come out here on thursday and uh i get here and a few hours later and and, and uh, jody calls me and our oldest kid at their decker he was pr- pretty much in tears upset because he wanted to come to the bush with dad and dad was in the bush without him so um unfortunate that he was upset but 
a proud dad moment right there that <laughs> you know he's he's still he's got the drive to come out and he wants to be out with me so yeah i'm excited about that so looking forward to going home and getting out with them again while the while the weather's still nice yeah yeah for sure um one thing that i did that we were using quite a bit was the eye hunter i'll let you talk about it but i just wanted to go to that quick because we were we set up a few different new stands since the last time you've hunted with us. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cool that we could share those stand locations because I have them all in mind and I can just like send them to you right away. Yeah. And the other thing that I was going to mention, like even your hunt start and stop times, I, I've known about it forever, but I use that quite a bit. Plus using the little weather app that they have, or not the app, but the weather information on there as well at that certain tree stand. Yeah. Because like the one spot we were hunting is probably about 15 miles away from our normal spot right so i know the weather's probably not going to change that much but you never know so you always check it exactly um if you're if you guys are interested you guys heard us talk lots about eye hunter on here if you're interested in trying them out you know they, they have like three different levels of the the eye hunter app that you can get into the basic level which is just the basic maps satellite imagery you still get the the gps function waypoints stuff like that um but you can step it up to the public land subscription and uh, if you're looking to get 30% off that, go to their web platform, web.ihunterapp.com. Use a code PANORAMIC30, it'll get you 30% off that. And uh, they also have the recently released uh, private landowners maps available yep. for purchase for Manitoba. Um, they also have available all across Canada, pretty much, I believe, now. Mm-hmm. So super cool. You can layer those those maps. You can change the opacity in them so they're they're not so you can see the the satellite imagery underneath the the maps and stuff so there's there's lots of tools lots of functions and obviously just the the easy use of the app is amazing we use it a lot yeah and it, the, although it's eye hunter like we've talked about with many different people you don't even need to be a hunter to actually like have it and, and have a use for it i know a lot of people that do hiking um even fishing and stuff, you have been using it, putting waypoints on it, sharing locations, mm-hmm. etc. The the if if you're if you're an outdoors person and you don't have iHunter, you should really look yourself in the mirror and ask why because it it help it helps out all the time. Yeah, and it takes away your GPS and everything else that you have to carry on. Yeah, satellite imagery, live GPS feed at your fingertips, so you can't beat it. And then. Talk, just to kind of finish up this intro on some of the kind of the hunting topic. So you came out here for a little, you a little. First of all, rewind. You went for a moose hunt. Now you did a little quick archery deer hunt with me. Mm-hmm. What else you got lined up before uh, before the end of the season? I'm do some more archery hunting around home, uh, and then two weeks from now, well, just under two weeks from now, we're we're heading to rifle camp for white-tailed deer in western manitoba as well so looking forward to that i'd, I'd really like to get a couple deer with the bow like a couple whether that's a buck or a doe or whatever um where i hunt archery there you're allowed two does oh, yeah. it's a three three tag three tag unit um and then i mean obviously there's lots of guys hunting up in our our rifle camp so i could always just sign on with somebody up there if i had to and uh run it that way but um yeah looking forward to that little nice. little bit later season we're bringing up the the canvas camp tent up there uh, i'm gonna try it in some i imagine it'll be a little bit cooler mm. up there do so. you put the floor in it 
Floors in it, yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah. Did you have it the floor in it up north? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We did. Yeah. And did that help quite a bit? I think so. Yeah. 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 Did you have it like propped up higher than normal? Nope. No, oh, just I just it's one of the pictures I seen. I think it was Jameson's. It looked like it was up higher somehow, and I was like, oh, maybe they figure out a way to get more room. No, we just I just set it up like I normally do, and, and oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, worked well. Good, good little unit, and uh, yeah. So along with the colder temps, obviously we got some 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 other tools in our backpack that we're using. Not necessarily on our backpack, but on our back, literally. And uh, I haven't taken my wool love off all week. Weekend. Me neither. <laughs> Other than today, I had a shower today. But... Yeah. I've been sleeping in it, hunting in it, socializing in it. So, yeah. um, the shit's great. Yeah, I'm due for a shower, and uh, I'm still not smelling. Uh, obviously, the antimicrobial properties are, are working hard for me. And uh, we were in some pretty moist conditions this morning. It had rained most of the night, yeah. and it was still raining when we went out there this morning and uh yeah no no issues with with thermal regulation i guess you can call it mm-hmm. which is awesome so um one one of the things that that i do enjoy about the wool love and one of the most important factors is that it does keep you in the field longer a good set of thermal underwear or like underwear that just regulates your body temperature well is going to keep you out hunting longer which means it should increase your success rates. So we love the wool love stuff that we have. It works well. We've used it a lot. If you're looking for something to try out, or even if you're looking for something different, they have t-shirts. I've worn the t-shirt a lot, casual wear. They have uh, like a polo style shirt that you can wear. They got underwear, socks, long underwear, all kinds of stuff. So check them out. The more you buy, the more you save at their website with the bundle system. Head over to wool.love. That is their website, wool.love. And uh, yeah, get yourself comfortable out there. And then we're rolling to episode 101 here. Episode 101. So before we go to episode 101, that was, was pretty sweet. But episode 100, our last one, yeah, it was titled The Greats. Um, you and Tristan kind of put it together there. Three different interviews. If you guys haven't checked that one out, check it out. It's um, probably one of our, I'm not going to say it's better than any other one, but it's just like kind of our milestone episode. Like it's it's 100, so it's a pretty big deal big for deal. us. So if you ever have time, go over, check that one out, um, and then give us a rating or comment on iTunes or Spotify, whatever you listen to on, and, um, and let us know what you think because every time we get a rating or every time we get a comment, it helps uh, with our exposure and gets our name out there a little bit farther and it helps us get guests. So like our hundredth episode, we had um, Cody Robbins, Jim Shock, and April Volke. I mean, those three guests right there were tough to get, but with uh, with all the support from all of our listeners, it makes it a little bit easier when we get a little bit more cred in the old podcast world. So that's right. Share the episode with a friend as well. So I'm I'm curious before we get dive into episode one on one here. You were absent for the uh, the intro portion of uh episode 100 so i just want to pick your brain for a second and and just see you know how you how you're feeling about our, our journey here and our where we're at well it's a it's funny because i was listening to that episode and i kind of um some of the intro i, I had to skip through because i was listening to it while at work kind of idea so there's a few things i missed there but i did remember hearing uh, you guys kind of start talking about um the start to 
from the very start to episode 100. And I remember on our, I think it was our first or second episode, we actually talked about that. It's like, what do we want Panoramic to be? What we want to accomplish with it? And like to sit here and say, yeah, we're going to get to 100 episodes. That'd be a total bullshit lie on my part. Because <laughs> like after like the first five episodes, we, we started and I'm like, holy shit like we're not getting that much like there's not that many people listening like how are we going to build this company and build this brand so at the very start i was very skeptical on how long this was actually going to last but you know i like i said in on many different episodes i don't think it would matter if one person listened or a million people listen i think we'd still do it because our you know our message is always going to be the same we just want to help people get outside Mm -hmm. and so yeah i'm super happy to where we're at today and it's just um you know, it's starting, to, it's starting to go a long way when, you know, there's there's people out there that are, you know, saying thank you to us for entertaining them. They're saying, you know, you know who you should get on next. Like, they're totally, like, for us instead yeah. of almost like, what are you guys doing that for? It still takes me by surprise a yeah. lot of the times. That, that So it's a super good feeling. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know if I really answered your question, but I am super happy where we're at. And um, there's no question that I want to keep doing this for another hundred for sure. Yeah. So shout out, thanks to everybody again for all the support. And uh, we hope you enjoy episode 101. All right. So I'm pretty excited about this this podcast here. And on the other line here, we're, we're doing this one over Zoom, obviously. But we have uh, Daniel DuPont and Katrine Kingdon. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. And uh, Daniel, Katrine, why don't you guys let us know where you're coming in from today? Sure. Well, I'm uh, I'm from uh, currently living in Winnipeg, um, but uh, but am I I grew up in the eastern Manitoba, so in the Saint George or Pine Falls area, and uh, but uh, currently living in the in the French part of Winnipeg. Katrine. Um, uh, yeah, I'm calling in from Saint John's, Newfoundland today. So even though our project does uh, take place in Manitoba, I'm a student out here. So when I'm not in Manitoba, I'm I'm out in Newfoundland. Right. So you guys are both students at uh, the Memorial University and not necessarily working on the exact same project, but um, obviously very closely intertwined, I would say. Is that about correct? Yeah. And uh, so so what level of of uh, like education you guys working on? Master's, PhD? Both both working for uh, towards our PhDs. PhDs? So it's. Awesome. Yeah. And so why don't, why don't, uh, Daniel, you start and, and I, what, what is your, the, uh, tell us a little bit about the project that you're working on right now, your PhD. Sure. Well, th- this, this kind of all started, um, all started really, uh, a few years ago, um, because of a, uh, because of, uh, of concerns with moose in, uh, in Eastern Manitoba. Um, and, and, and one of the things that, that, uh, that a lot of people were, were saying that is that, that, you know, we're not, we're not quite sure what's going on with moose and, and why are, um, why we're seeing some of these declines. And, uh, and one of the question marks was always, uh, what role does wolves or predation play into that decline? And so that's really kind of how this, this project really started is, is, is really looking at um, what role predation um, plays in the in the in, in the dynamics between moose and wolves, and so um, 
so that's how that's how I kind of got started in, in this project and and always wanted to um, always wanted to kind of pursue uh, further my studies uh, in part because you know there, there's a certain curiosity about you know trying to figure out what's going on out there and and, and you know being growing up uh, uh, you know spending all, most of my time in the outdoors um, it's uh, it's something that I think a lot of uh, lot of outdoor people can relate to you know when you see things out in the bush um you you often get questions about like okay well what's happening here you know and 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 so it's kind of that drive to try and you know understand what's kind of happening with moose and wolves out in eastern manitoba and that's kind of how really i got started with uh, with this particular project mm-hmm. and you're actually a, a biologist here in manitoba as well um on the uh, working for Conser- Manitoba Conservation or Sustainable Development, they call it now, right? So, right, yeah. Now, now we're <laughs> we're a different name again. Now, now we're Agriculture and Resource Development, right? Um, but it's uh, but yes, I uh, I also I'm also a biologist, but uh, but uh, but do really love this this whole um, this this whole uh, student uh, aspect of my life right now, and 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 really focusing on on uh pursuing uh some of some furthering my studies i guess yeah that's awesome so um have you were you always interested in in wolves growing up and and moose obviously you were kind of you're working very closely to uh, some of the territory that you grew up in so is that uh fair to say that kind of interest drew you in even more there yeah i i guess i'm i'm pretty I'm, i'm quite lucky in that um uh, there aren't, I, I would say that there aren't many projects uh, like the one that Katrina and I work on. Um, uh, there, there aren't many in North America, kind of like ours, and, and especially in Manitoba, like this type of research is, is pretty novel. And um, so I am quite lucky to be doing this project, essentially in the, in the backyard where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's, it's always something that I've always kind of been interested by, by all, you know, any wildlife, there's always kind of a bit of an, a, spe- a special interest with, with moose and wolves, just, you know, they're, you know, they're large animals and, and they're, they're so intriguing and, and, and so, you know, such smart animals. And, um, but, but really when it comes to the wolves, um, how I kind of started working with wolves was really by chance in, in a way in that I was working, uh, doing some, uh, grizzly research out in the Rockies, uh, about like 15 years ago. Um, and then, uh, in doing some field work out there, I, uh, I interacted with some PhD students who, who were doing some wolf research out there in the Rockies, which uh, a similar project than, than what Katrina and I are working on right now. And in talking with them, uh, uh, we got to know each other and we developed a, you know, a, a certain relationship. And, and, and then they asked uh, my, my friend and I, who were working on this grizzly project to, to help them out with their wolf project, um, that, that coming winter. And so that's kind of how I got started with some of this wolf work. And now, uh, and now today, you know, and, and for the past few years, I've been able to, to do it in, in essentially my backyard where I grew up, which is, uh, which I feel pretty fortunate to, to be able to do. Yeah, that's awesome. 
I know um, for the listeners out there, Daniel and I actually used to do a little bit of this work together. I used to fly you on some of these projects and Katrine, we were talking also earlier that uh, there might have been a couple trips where we flew together as well. Um, you guys obviously spend quite a bit of time in a helicopter and quite a bit of time on the land as part of this project. Uh, Katrine, why don't, why don't you uh, tell us your portion of, of the study here and, and what, what you're kind of, how do you get got involved? Oh, got a phone ringing in the background. <laughs> Um, yeah, for sure. So I kind of joined the project a couple of years in. So I started in 2017. Um, and I actually joined the project initially as a master's student. Um, I was looking to get into a wildlife biology project uh, of any kind. And so when this opportunity came up, I was like, what wolves? This is fantastic. This is my favorite animal. I would love to be able to do that. And I had also uh, just spent four years in Halifax doing my undergrad. So this was also an opportunity to uh, spend a little bit more time back in Manitoba, be a little bit closer to home, um, but actually get to explore a different part of the province. Uh, so it was, uh, it was really, uh, really lucky that I kind of came across this project um, when I did. And so I initially started out looking um, at how linear features, so you can think of just different road types, for example, um, might impact uh, movement and kind of where wolves want to be on the landscape. So that was kind of where I initially started. And then the opportunity came up to actually uh, turn my master's into a PhD program. And because I loved the project so much and I was really enjoying the work, um, I accepted that offer and we then brought in uh, Moose to the project. And so again, looking at linear features and their impact, um, but then kind of eventually we'll hope to bring in some predator-prey dynamics to that work as well. Nice. So originally the, the, the project was just slated to study the linear movement of predators along these. Yeah, so I was first just going to look at the wolves, but then when I uh, decided to do the PhD, we brought in moose. Gotcha, gotcha. And how did, uh, how did you get linked up with Daniel on this project? Were you guys chatting or were there professors that kind of pointed you guys each other in the proper direction or how did the, how does that work? So I was actually familiar um, with our supervisor's work because he had done some work uh, near where I grew up in Riding Mountain National Park for his PhD. Mm -hmm. And so I was a little bit familiar with um, kind of his PhD work. And so I knew that he was just starting a new lab out east. So I contacted him initially um, and then through him, he uh, put us in contact and uh, and we yeah, started working together uh, when I came out to Manitoba to do some field work. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, I think we should get to know you guys a little bit better here. I know uh, Sheldon's sitting across the table from me dying to ask you a few personal questions. So the people... They're not too personal, but <laughs> there are five burning questions. We ask them to all our guests. Yeah, try to get everyone kind of familiar with what you're doing uh, professionally and maybe just some... Some fun questions to get people to know you a little bit differently. Um, but this one's for Daniel. I got six of them. We'll just go back and forth. But the first one's for Daniel. Well, what's your favorite Halloween treat? Favorite Halloween treat? Okay, just off the top like that, um, I would say coffee crisp. Ooh, that's uh, good. I'm a sucker. But the, the funny thing is, in the middle, I don't like coffee. I'm not a coffee drinker. <laughs> I love coffee crisp. Figured that one out. I don't know. <laughs> is that something you take to the the... Uh, backcountry with you when you're when you're on the moose uh, 
looking for kill sites on the land? No, strangely enough, I've never brought, I, I don't think I've ever brought a coffee crisp or chocolate bars with me, um, no way. But, uh, but maybe I should. Since this is getting released right around Halloween, I guess I'll ask Chris, or Katrine the same question. What's your favorite Halloween treat? Um, I love any of like the sour candy. So like fuzzy peaches or sour patch kids or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but then my other favorite, and this might be a bit controversial, is I love rockets. I know that a lot of people do not, but uh, I do. And so it's great because I get to eat them all. Nice. Uh, my next question is for Christine as well. Uh, what book or TV series are you watching or reading currently? Um, I'm actually reading a book right now called Americana. Um, and then TV show. What are, we're watching a couple different right ones right now. And I can't even think of any off the top of my head. Um, oh, we're watching actually the newest season of Kim's Convenience. Oh, oh yeah. that, that's that um, convenience store in Toronto. It's, it's like based in Toronto or something like that? It's based in Toronto, yeah. Yeah. Nice. It's great. Awesome. Uh, Daniel, um, I already know this answer, I guess, but uh, coffee or tea um, or any <laughs> other hot drink that you might drink since you don't drink coffee? Yeah, I, I'm I'm a uh, tea guy, uh, herbal teas, uh, and I like to get my own my own teas as well out in the bush when I'm when I'm out there. Cool. But uh, and my friends make fun of me all the time about this, but I'm also just kind of a hot water type of guy. Hot. So uh, often 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 in the bush, I'll just have a, a, a thermos of hot water, and, and my friends will you know they say I'm like a like a old granny who's you know looking <laughs> for her, what they call it pearl tea. I'm not too sure what it, what that means, but uh, but yeah, hot water or tea. Nice. Do you ever put any lemon in that hot water, or just straight hot water? Straight hot water. Nice. What kind of what kind of stuff do you uh, mix up in the bush for bush tea? Uh, I, anything, depending on you know whether it's Labrador tea. I'll, I'll often get you know just mint on it, whether it's on the side of you know a beaver uh, a beaver dam or. Um, uh, winterberry uh you name it all sorts of different things nice that mint always seems to yeah. grow pretty good on the on the beaver dams and beaver houses eh it's 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 awesome it's, it's like you know when i ask people about the when they ask me about mint i'm like yeah like if, if you're walking in the bush like it's almost you're almost guaranteed to find mint wild mint along the beaver dam it's yeah. almost guaranteed i got along uh, with wolf tracks nice yeah. Um, yeah. I got a cool mint experience. We were, we were doing some work around, uh, on the power line and, uh, I was flying at this time and we had landed and it was just like somebody planted a field of mint on like the right away. And like the rotors were going and everything just smelled like mint in the helicopter. It was super cool. <laughs> that's a pleasant, uh, well, it, it sure beats a lot of other smells. That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh katrine my next question for you would be if you had one last meal you can uh well if you have one last meal what would it be and you can go into much details you want and you can put a drink with it and some dessert if you want as well oh my goodness i feel like i can answer danielle's questions a lot easier than these ones uh, oh my grandparents make uh what i think is the best uh marinara sauce in the world so i would say uh, marinara sauce, that specific marinara sauce um, with gnocchi, not just like spaghetti, but specifically with gnocchi. Um, maybe with like a Caesar salad or something on the side. And then a dark chocolate cheesecake for dessert. 
Nice. Nice. Nothing beats a good cheesecake, in my opinion. Yeah. Danielle, uh, if you had one last concert, what would you uh, check out? One last concert? Hmm. That's, uh, that's a tough one. So, it, it, again, with the, the whole, like, the theme about, you know, with the grandma tea there, you know, with the hot water and stuff like that, uh, I, I think I, I went to go see Gordon Lightfoot a few years back. Um, and, and he wasn't doing too well at the time. And so I, I thought maybe that would have been, you know, the last time I saw him, but I, I would love to see Gordon Lightfoot one last time. Like he, he just an incredible Canadian songwriter and, 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 and singer. So I, I, I go with the classic Gordon Lightfoot. That's awesome. Do you have a favorite, uh, Gordon Lightfoot song? Mm. Oh, he has so many, like the record with Fitzgerald is, is, is really, you know, it's, it's a pretty powerful song. Mm-hmm. I think I'd go with that one. That's a good one. Very good. And my last question for the six burning questions, we'll call it this time, is for Katrine. Uh, if you had one uh, dream vacation, where would you take off and go walk or go look at? <laughs> so many options. Another um, hard one, eh? I think this one's actually a bit easier. I, I think I would go to the Galapagos Islands. Um, I think that like through all of my biology classes, like this place just kept coming up and kept coming up and there's just, it's full of wildlife. Um, I guess like there's hammerhead shark breeding grounds near there. So I think that would be a pretty cool vacation. Yeah. There's some unique things about the Galapagos. It's off the coast of Ecuador. Okay. Um, And there's some, there's some, uh, uh, like stuff that happens there that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world right yeah i thinking about the same place yeah there's like interesting like species where like depending on where they are located on the island like finches for example they have different beak structures or like different evolutionary traits because of like what's available to them Mm -hmm. on that island is there Um, something with turtles there too or something yeah there's like galapagos tortoises i believe that are like really endangered but they seem to be doing well there yeah, some pretty cool animals built that way. Yeah, no kidding. All right, well, back to our regular scheduled programming. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of got to look into like how you guys got started with this. Um, the whole wolf and moose studies here. Now, what can you dig, bring us a little deeper into like what exactly you guys are looking for and and how about are you guys um, accomplishing these studies? What's all involved here? Um, maybe I'll start it, and please jump in, Katrine, if, uh, uh, if if I'm missing anything here. But 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 really, uh, uh, like when you kind of break it down, um, uh, a lot of our our information comes from uh, collared individuals. So that in this case, uh, in our study area, it, it means uh, collaring both of the wolves and moose with uh, GPS collars that record um, GPS locations um, every two hours uh, in most cases. So what that means is that we, we can then, um, uh, we know where these collared animals are um, every two hours and, and, and how far they move and you know at different times of the day and whatnot. So, so th- that's the primary tool we use to get a lot of our information. Um, and then from that, we can then, you know, dive deeper into some of our specific questions that both Katrina and I have. And so um, w- w- one of the 
things that 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 both Katrina and I have been doing and, and we'll both be using for respective you know questions that we have is uh is 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 looking at what wolves um what wolves are doing in terms of behavior on the landscape like are, are they resting at, at, at a certain place are they um uh moving or are they killing something or are they scavenging on something and, and if they do kill or scavenge on something uh what is it is it you know is it a moose? Is it a deer? Is it a beaver? Um, and, and if it is, you know, if, if we've, you know, once we figure out what it is, um, then uh, we look at trying to identifying what is it uh, male or female? Is it uh, trying to get a sense of the age? Um, looking at getting, trying to getting a sense of whether that animal that got uh, preyed on by wolves is was in good condition or if it was in poor condition was it sick was it old was it injured before it got taken by wolves um so we do that by downloading the data from the gps collars that we have on these wolves on a regular basis and then katrina and i and, and on a few occasions we have assistants that help us as well and and we go out in the bush and examine all these sites where wolves spent a certain amount of time uh, to try and determine what they did there. Mm -hmm. um, right. So if I remember correctly, some of the work that I, I, I did with you guys, um, you guys have this map and you have a plan of, of uh, what you want to do. Obviously, you know, you got to plan it out quite well with the helicopter and stuff like that for flight time and stuff. But, and on the map, there's, certain cluster areas where the you you've, there's uh you get multiple signal transmissions from these gps callers and that they all go onto the map and then that's that's the areas that you focus on where they spend spend some time right exactly i don't know did you did you want to uh, well, continue on there katrine or add uh, to that sure yeah no i think you covered most of it but um yeah we just are trying to essentially identify areas of high intensity use by wolves. And we just want to know exactly like Danielle said, what sort of behaviors associated with those sites. And, you know, we're trying to do this across all seasons, um, across all packs that we've ever collared. So we try and get, you know, a really large range of behaviors um, because every pack has different uh, sites that they like to spend time in. They have different prey that they're going after. So the more data that we can collect, um, the better. And I think that's Part of what makes our project really unique is because we have um, over over a thousand or even maybe 1500 different sites that we've been to uh, oh, over wow. the course of the project. So we've done a lot of work um, looking at these clusters to try and get as much data as we possibly can uh, in terms of like wolf behavior. That's super cool. I got a quick question there for one of you guys, whoever wants to answer it, but um, I kind of, you, you kind of answered some of it there, Daniel, but uh, um to like find these kill sites, obviously you got wolves that are collared and then they, they kind of like conjugate into one area. Like, do you, are you constantly following these wolves to know when they're actually at a kill site or like, how do you know they're not just like chilling out for a day on a, you know, on an Island or something? Like, how do you determine when it's actually a kill site and when you should go and investigate it, say? Right. Yeah, no, no, that, that's a great question. And, and, and to, to be honest with you, what, what, what we try and do is to not, we try not to be biased in terms of which sites we we choose to visit. 
So we, we try and visit um, as many sites as we can that we can reach. And, and, and we, can't, we can't go to every site. Like we only go to a proportion of, of, of sites because we have, we've had so many different packs at the same time collared. And as you can imagine, a pack moves uh, quite a bit. And so there's a lot of different sites that we can visit. So we try and, and regardless of whether, based on our experience going to these sites, whether we think it's a kill or not, we still visit uh, 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 a broad array of different clusters of locations. And, and, and I think that's also part of the strength of the project is that um, it, it's equally important to get a, to go visit a resting site as it is a kill because then what we can do is then we can predict based on the data that we've we've collected and, and all these sites that we've investigated we can say okay these type of sites are are are, are likely um uh, resting sites so th then then we're able to get like not just looking at what we found on the landscape but also predicting based on 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 the data that we've have it's like predicting, okay, well, this is a kill. This is likely a kill, probably a moose. And this here is probably a resting site. So then we can apply that to data, you know, moving forward uh, and, and, not, and trying to, to help um, because this is a pretty labor intensive project in terms of field work. Like the, the amount of time that Katrina and I have put, um, you know, bushcrashing, uh, I, I mean, it was, you know, obviously we've flown with you, Chase, and and and, but but the vast majority of the time that we spend out there is is by foot, and so you know it's uh, and if you've been ever been in in the boreal forest, uh, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, uh, like in eastern Manitoba, it's it's a lot of just rocks, bogs, and it's just up and down, and you're wet often, you know, most of the day because you're you're going through creeks and, and bogs and whatnot so it, it, it's it's a lot of work but but I, but hopefully that work that when we go to these sites whether it's a kill or a resting site that will help for future projects okay well we know based on this that this is probably a kill so that helps us uh, kind of minimize the amount of work that we need to do in the future right on and I'm just, I'm just I'll apologize now some of my questions are going to be kind of basic just because um, I don't know much about like your kind of your project as much as uh, Chase has done as lots of research on it or some research, I guess I'll say. But um, I guess my follow-up question, you kind of mentioned it as you do collar wolves, but how many of the wolves would you collar in one pack? Like, are you, do you try to find like the dominant animal or, or are you collaring a bunch of them? Like, how does that work? Yeah, that's, that's a good question as well. And that the, the reality is, is that in some areas, instead some study sites, um, where it's a little bit more open, um, you could be a little bit more selective as to which animals within the pack you you can you you can collar uh, or want to collar. But in our study sites, um, the bush is so thick, uh, and it's so hard to find and catch wolves that that in reality we just catch we collar the, the the wolves that we can catch. So we we track them in the winter time by by helicopter and uh, we hire a company who then uh, who, to help us catch them as well 
and uh, essentially we just we just catch the the first two wolves uh, in each pack that we come across. Um, so ideally you would ideally you would get the the um, um, the dominant pair, um, but in our case it's it's essentially the first two wolves that we can find uh, in, in in each pack. That so we, we try and get two colors per pack. That's usually the the rule of thumb. Um, because wolves tend to be pretty hard on collars and uh, as a social animal that live in the pack. So you have other animals trying to you know, uh, take the collar off and, uh, and also just they're always on the move. And how they eat is they, you know, they have to take down animals, in some cases, a large animal like a moose. Uh, so that's, that's pretty rough on collars. So we try and deploy two collars per pack as a kind of a backup. But, but even that uh, it is often isn't enough because uh, at a, after a certain amount of time, the, sometimes the colors will stop working. What does, what's the, you, you spoke about uh, like sometimes ideally you want to try and get the, the two kind of alpha uh, wolves or the leaders in the pack is what kind of process, how do you determine that if, if you have the time or have the space to uh, select that? How what what how do you do that from like uh, a helicopter? I guess. Yeah, to to do that, you would require a, a fair amount of time or, or more time, and, and it's typically if if you're able to kind of follow a pack for a while, you, you're you're you should be able to see kind of the base on how the animals within the pack, all the individual wolves, kind of behave relative to each other. Um, you could you could pick up on signs in terms of like which ones tend to be the more dominant ones, whether you know it's uh, it's you know who's following who, or in terms of their the, the, their tail and whatnot, and, and in terms of like how like their body language relative to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's typically how you would you you, you could de- determine whether you know certain animals are are the dominant part of the dominant pair Mm -hmm. um but but in reality it's it's yeah it's it's almost impossible to do in our study area because it's just so thick it's just so thick bush out there yeah i got a i got a kind of uh offshoot question here about the the dynamics of a wolf pack um so i guess well i guess maybe kind of answer it but but i've seen some stuff on the internet where there's like a pack of like 15 wolves and and some somebody throws up a comment on there saying you can tell the the pack dominus because the one in the front of the packs leading the pack and the old and the sick one is right at the back kind of thing and and the rest of the pack is clearing the path for them is there is there any truth behind any of that uh i i would say that and, and katrine jump in if, if if you want but the uh, uh i would say that with i, I wouldn't say that that's the rule of thumb like it's it can happen mm-hmm. that, that's certainly but it's it's not always the case where where the dominant the dom, one of the dominant uh pairs uh individuals is in the front um uh, uh certainly the dominant pairs typically are the ones who kind of drive what the pack does um so it, it can that can be the case where they are in the front but that that's it's like uh, like all things in nature, it's it's not quite as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Although, it, in some cases, it it, it it could be that, right. but it, it's it's not always the case. 
Yeah. Um, I, I kind of want to go back to Katrine. You, you, you mentioned that, you know, there, you guys really focus on the high intensity use areas and, um, I'm assuming, um, the, the linear sites obviously fall into that a little bit as well, but do you see seasonal changes within those, in the, in the patterns there? at all between like um, ease of travel and prey options? Uh, definitely. So uh, specifically when we think about like the prey options uh, for almost every single pack that we have followed, as soon as the ice starts to break up in the springtime, we see an almost immediate switch from uh, looking at like ungulates from like moose or deer to uh, wolves going after beaver. Um, so in the summertime, when we're going to kill sites, that's predominantly what we're finding is actually that wolves are going after beaver in the summertime. Um, wow. And you do see some beaver kills in the winter as well, but you know it's a lot harder for wolves to get at them. And uh, if you do find a beaver kill in the winter, it's usually um, bad luck on the beaver's part because they've maybe run out of food and have had to leave the safety of their lodge um, or maybe just happen to get caught out on the ice. Uh, so you definitely see a really strong seasonal switch, um, mm -hmm. which is really interesting. And with the movement and travel, um, we haven't really broken down like the linear feature impacts necessarily by season, but I would assume that there'd likely be a change. Like for example, in uh, the winter time, if there's a lot of snow accumulation on certain linear features um, that aren't really being packed down or cleared by humans, uh, they probably are a lot harder for wolves to use than uh, for example, in the summertime when it's nice and hard packed. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you definitely do see changes in like the movement dynamics of wolves between season as well. So in the winter, they're pretty cohesive. So they're all traveling as a pack together. And then as the spring comes and they're starting to den, uh, you do see the, the pack kind of split up into smaller subgroups and they start to travel around together. But we'll always kind of come back to that, uh, that same central denning site, check in with each other. And then as the pups get older, uh, start to travel together again. Right. Um, I want to talk to you about food resources here a little bit. Um, now, I, I always assume that like, I mean, obviously, everybody assumes that like that uh, the wolves and the ungulates have a have a major relationship there. Um, but but I, I remember the first time somebody told me that beavers were a major player in the wolves diet. I was, I just kind of surprised me quite a bit because, um, first off I thought, well, how many beavers, oh, how far does a beaver go in a pack of wolves? You know what I mean? Compared to a moose or an elk or something like that. Like it's, so I guess the first question is how many beavers can a wolf pack eat in the summer? And like, is there, is there any other supplemental stuff that they're eating out there? Well, I don't know, Daniel, do you have a, an estimate of a number? I would say hundreds i'm not sure you could like a single beaver would you know maybe feed a smaller wolf pack one one meal maybe mm -hmm. not even maybe maybe a pair of wolves or something like that but you know you do find that they will eat almost the entire animal so there's not a lot of food being lost to like scavengers for example as you would see with larger prey items um but you do also see other things like snowshoe hares uh grouse um, we found all sorts of things. Uh, we do some scat or we have students who have done some scat analysis for us. And when you go through some of the contents, uh, it's pretty amazing the variety of, of prey that are, are found actually in, in a wolf's diet. Um, okay. But yeah, I don't know, Daniel, do you have anything to add to that? 
Yeah, j just that, um, uh, and I think, I think, well, you touched on a really, I think a really interesting and important point there, Katrine, in terms of like, one of the things that, that, uh, that uh, is important to keep in mind when we talk about wolves is, is the, um, the difference between large and small prey. So like in, in this particular example, moose and beaver, and also looking at the size of the pack, the wolf pack that we're talking about. And, and, and when we're talking about a larger pack, let's say like, you know, 10, 15 wolves, you know, those, when a pack is that large, typically, even if it is a large prey that they, that they're, that they're eating. So in this case, like for example, moose, they, they could clean up a moose pretty quickly. Uh, but, but if, if it's a, you know, more of a medium sized pack or smaller pack, you know, anywhere between, you know, as, as small as two, three wolves or, or more like five to six uh, wolves in a pack, like th those size packs, um, they won't be able to clean up a, a, a moose as quickly. So even though they're, they take down a larger animal and there's more meat there for them to eat, they aren't able to eat it all at once. And what that, and what that means is that in some cases, depending on the size of the pack, I mean, some studies have shown that, you know, it's, it's quite substantial, the amount of, from the wolf's perspective, uh, loss meat to scavengers. So in some cases, it could be like over 70% of, of, a, of a kill that, uh, that is the, the available meat there is taken by crows or, or ravens or uh, uh, foxes, you, you name it, right? So so if they're not able to eat it, uh, because wolves can only eat so much, they have to rest, have to digest, and then they come back if there's more to eat, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so if they're a smaller pack, they're not able to finish it. Whereas when you're talking about smaller prey, um, it is obviously there's a big difference in terms of size with a beaver and a moose. But but the thing is with the beaver, they can eat it all in one mm -hmm. sitting, and 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 so there, there's no wastage. Of, or, or wastage from the wolf's perspective. I, I don't mean it in terms of like, it's not really wastage because, you know, as, as we all know in nature, everything gets used, you know, but, uh, but from a wolf's perspective, they, they, yes, they have to kill more beavers to get the same amount uh, as they would from a moose, um, but, um, but they, they, they will uh, lose less meat um, but there's also another part of that that's kind of interesting is, is the aspect of risk involved as well when we're right. talking about going after a moose and a beaver. Yeah, there's, there's obviously probably less energy expenditure by going after a beaver and uh, less injuries as well. How, how does a, a wolf um, give us a breakdown on how a wolf will uh, pursue a beaver and how a wolf will p pursue a moose generally? I, I have a pretty good, a good idea, I think, of, of the moose side of it, but I'm just like, do you, when when uh, you get a wolf killing a beaver, are they do they just wait for them to come out of the water to to gather feed, or do, are they going after them in their in their uh, lodges, or how do they usually get a beaver? Did you want to go, Katrina? Um, sure. I mean, I think there's been some some other researchers that have actually looked at how. Uh, wolves will go after beavers, but Danielle and I have our uh, similar theories just from kind of being out there. We always find 
a wolf bed next to a beaver kill um, always. And so I think there's a good chance that, yeah, they're basically just ambushing them. They're just kind of hunkering down under a tree, waiting for that beaver to come out of the water and then going after it. Um, but I have also, this was only a single time, but I found a beaver kill in the middle of a rocky outcrop surrounded by jack pine. Huh. And I have no idea um, why that beaver was there. It might've been a younger individual that was looking for its own uh, kind of body of water to, to take over. But I know that the beaver was killed there because all of the moss had been torn up. There was definitely uh, some sort of encounter and a struggle. Uh, so it wasn't just that the beaver had been eaten there. It had definitely been killed there. So um, that might've just been a chance encounter, unfortunately for that beaver. But uh, I think Daniel, have you found some, uh, some lodges that have been dug into by wolves or evidence? Maybe they didn't actually succeed. Yeah, it, absolutely. So it, 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 and that would have been more in the winter time where, where wolves will on occasion, we have come across that where, where they try and dig up the beaver lodge and, and access the beavers that way. Um, but, but like Katrine mentioned, um, I mean, our, our theory is, is that when it comes to beavers, the likelihood is, is that um, they wait uh, and ambush them uh, once they're out of the water, because really a beaver is pretty safe when it's in the water. Um, it's, it's really in its element. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, but the thing is, is that beavers do need to come out of the water eventually uh, to get, you know, to get food. And so, uh, and, and when they do, they, they are quite vulnerable to moose, I mean, to moose, uh, to wolves, that is. And so they are, uh, so if, I, I suspect that they're pretty easy to get once they're out of the water. I mean, um, I, 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 have, I haven't witnessed it with my own eyes, but, um, but the thing is, is that when, when you see a, a beaver outside of water, they're, I mean, they could be quick, but they, uh, they certainly aren't as agile as a wolf. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. What about on the moose end of things? Um, what's, uh, what's a, a wolf's play on taking down a, a large predator like that? Obviously, like we discussed earlier here, there's lots at risk. You know, a moose is very powerful. They can break bones, kick the wolf. Um, what, uh, what's their strategy well I, I think the thing with wolves is that the thing that's kind of interesting and 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 what's a little bit different than uh what might be uh it's a different strategy than beavers in that we suspect that with beavers they're ambushing um but they also are probably they they could be doing it in smaller groups like not the whole pack hunting beavers um but they could probably do it themselves as well as just like one wolf uh, and, and, and attack a beaver and then bring it back and, and share it with the rest of the pack. Um, but when it comes to, uh, to moose, uh, wolves typically will, will hunt as a pack. And, and that's, you know, that's not always the case. You know, a single wolf can take down a moose, uh, especially like a, a weak moose, but, but typically they will work as a pack together and uh and 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 try and take down a moose but the thing that we have to remember is that for every encounter between moose and wolves uh, it's actually a small proportion of moose that are actually taken 
down. Oh, really? So it's so it's it's actually not you know the, the, there's a lot of um, a lot of testing involved, and, and it's not something that we necessarily look for in a, in our data that Katrina and I have been have been uh, examining in our study site, but uh, it, it's been found in other studies where you know for, they they do come across moose. And, and they'll kind of test them, you know, they'll, they'll see if, if, if the moose is, uh, is, is injured, if it's, uh, you know, not as mobile and then, and, 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 and if it holds their ground, that moose, it, uh, it has a better chance of surviving and, and, and not, um, end up being prey. But if, if, if the wolves sense that there's something that makes that moose, um, uh, vulnerable whether it's because it's sick because it's injured it's limping uh or because of where it is whether it's you know it's it's against uh a, a cliff or rock outcrop or something like that and it has like nowhere to go um i mean or maybe it's a it's a cow with the calf and it's trying to protect its calf and 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 so those are all kind of things that 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 wolves kind of take into consideration when they encounter a moose and then say, okay, well, is it, is it worth the risk of potentially, you know, getting a broken back by, you know, with a kick, uh, from, a from a moose. And so they test them out. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and so the, the, the pack kind of works together and, and they try, you know, they work the, the, the back end and they'll, they'll kind of, you know, nip at, at the moose. And if, if, if the moose is able to uh, stand its ground, typically they, a, a moose will be able to fight off a pack. Um, but if, it, when it starts um, running, the, there's uh, the likelihood of the moose surviving starts decreasing. And that's mm. when wolves start getting a little bit more successful in taking um, wool, uh, uh, taking moose because then they're able to slowly nip at at the moose and and weaken the moose eventually to the point where um the moose uh the moose will die right but we are we sometimes we have come across situations where there was clearly an encounter between the moose and the wolves um but the moose didn't die right away and then it got you know got weakened over the course of a day or two and then eventually died and the wolves fi finished it off and so in that, that particular case that was a collared moose that were where the collared wolves attacked that moose moose survived but only for a day or two and then and then eventually the moose died and then the wolves came in and uh and, and took and took the meat so not it's not always uh it's not always immediate where the moose will die, um, but uh, but in some cases, uh, yeah, it, it will take a little bit longer for them to die. Yeah, I, I uh, kind of witnessed something like that as well. I was doing some uh, some work in Riding Mountain, and we had come across an injured moose. He had an injured uh, ankle or something on his leg was injured, and. Uh, uh, we in the morning we had seen a, a pack of wolves that were maybe like a quarter mile away heading heading his way, and uh, when we flew back over at the end of the day, there was 
obviously signs of some sort of struggle between the wolves and the moose and the wolves were literally like bedded around the moose within like 100 yards and the moose was just laying on its side and they hadn't killed it yet there was no blood or anything the moose was just exhausted tired right out laying on his side and he just kind of moved his head as we flew over and i just felt like oh you're in trouble buddy <laughs> but it's pretty yeah. it's pretty interesting to see that dynamic it is and 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 a little uh, another little story actually similar to what you just described in addition to you know some of the species that katrine mentioned that that's uh, the packs that we've been following that that they've targeted um uh, on occasion some packs will will go after black bears in the winter time mm. and uh, and especially one particular pack had a seemed to have uh figured out a a way um to to get bears out of the den smaller bears out of the den and 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 were quite good at it and um and in this one particular instance we were we had these uh alaskan wolf trackers that flew in, in in a fixed wing uh fixed wing of plane and they were uh they were helping us out trying to find wolves and and so we were in a helicopter we, this is during the collaring process we were trying to find wolves to collar them and then so they, they call they call over the radio and they say hey then yeah there's a there's a pack of four wolves in this particular area do we want to try and catch these wolves and, and put collars on them and they say yes that's perfect let's uh let's try to do that so we've, we're starting to fly over to where these Alaskan wolf trackers are. And, uh, and then it turns out, uh, like a couple minutes later, they, they call back and they say, hey, then yeah, actually, you know, that pack of four wolves is a pack of three. That fourth wolf is a bear uh, that they're attacking. So, so, we, so as we flew to the area, um, uh, yeah, it's, it was it's a, it's a pack of three wolves, and, and they that I was that particular pack that 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 had you know become really good at, at killing black bears. We didn't know that at the time, but uh, uh, but yeah, and, and in that particular case, we uh, we found them, and they, they were just at that point when we got there, the wolves were just bedded within a boat of just a, a few a few meters away from the black bear, and the black bear was just kind of laying there. Um, and then, so we did call her wolf in that pack that day. And then we came back the next day to try and, and call her a second one. And when we did, um, the moose, uh, not the moose, the, the bear was was dead by that point. And they had to start feeding on it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes, when you think about it from a risk perspective, um, if, 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 the, if they know that the animal is, is close to dying or, 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 or really weakened, why go in there and, potentially get injured while you just kind of wait, sit back and, and, and it sounds cool, but I mean, that's nature for you. Oh man. That, that's awesome. It's crazy how, how, uh, wolves can adapt and learn like that. I remember too. Um, I think, I think I've mentioned this story before on the podcast as well about some of the, the riding mountain stuff. There was a, uh, a Creek there that the wolves used to like herd the elk to. And when they would catch them on this one specific spot, they would just push the elk over the edge. I'm sure Katrine, you probably have heard this story before. And uh, it's that's incredible how smart they are. Yeah, I think that hill has been nicknamed Kill Hill. Yeah. Um, because it's 
a very consistent spot where where wolves will kill elk yeah that's incredible that's super cool i've actually heard quite a few stories i lived up uh, in the north for like six years so i got to know a lot of moose hunters up there and telling stories about like how they came across cows with uh, basically like achilles tendons were bit right off and the wolves are just waiting the cow out to to basically go in there and eat her um but i got a question you, you kind of mentioned on how they're like selective on how they're going to do a kill um chase has mentioned like how they adapt etc but do you ever find um more say um ungulate kills in the fall time compared to the summer like even before winter when like say the bulls and stuff are after rut they're weaker like do they ever target male ungulates instead of female or ca- or calves or is it or do you ever like notice any of that not yeah that's that's a great question and and, and to be honest with you um i i don't i don't know that we have a clear answer to that yet um like we have a lot of data and and but we haven't we haven't looked specifically at, at at that particular question but that's certainly something that we want to look for in the data in terms of like our are animals more vulnerable at certain points of the times of the year, right? And, and like you said, you alluded to, you know, it could be that, you know, bulls uh, in this particular case where they're just, their resources, at, you know, in the fall time, as, as we all know, they're just, they just have one thing on their mind and that is reproduction, right? And so, um, and so they're, they're not really taking care of themselves at that point. And, uh, I know the the project that I was working on previously out west in in, in the Rockies. Um, we did see a fair amount of selection for for uh, for bucks. Um, so that this was for for mule and white-tailed deer uh, in the fall time. And and I don't recall off the top of my head if if it was my because I, I was just a technician at that particular time. So I I don't have I didn't look at at all the data but my recollection was at that during during or shortly after the rut there was a fair amount of uh a greater proportion of of bull, uh of bucks in that particular case that were that were killed relative to um relative to does so yeah i've uh i've read a couple different like studies with elk and wolves down in like in the south um in the, like in the united states and stuff and some of the things are very interesting with like bull elk and even mule deer like some of the older like males will hold their uh horns or antlers longer than you know a mature animal just because they they need them to kind of maybe defend themselves like these are people's theories and then the other theory is like those younger bucks they're shedding their their headgear right away so they can blend in with the cows and calves or whatever right so there's like all these theories on like because they're adapting to what the wolves are doing, so it's all pretty interesting as a, as a whole. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what uh, what kind of pack densities are you guys dealing with in in the area that you're you're working there? And is, is do you find that it's kind of consistent across Manitoba? Do you have any insight into the the wolf densities across the province or with compared to Canada? Even how does it's we don't really have a good handle uh of uh of the number of packs um that we have in manitoba um and 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 really that really is because um 
wolves are so difficult to monitor because they're so mobile. They like they 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 move a lot, and so you know they move a lot within their territory. And, and then you also get dispersal. You know, you'll get uh, individuals after a certain amount of time they'll disperse and, and try and find their own you know area where they can create and establish their own territory. But but they're constantly on the move. And, and because where most of the wolves are found in Manitoba is, is within that forested boreal forest, um, which is pretty thick too. So it, it becomes very tricky to figure out. That being said, it's, um, it's I, I would say that wolves in Manitoba are probably, you know, the pretty healthy, fairly healthy population. Um, and pretty comparable to other areas where, where you know, in, in Canada, where, uh, you know, within the boreal forest. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in agricultural parts of Manitoba, it's probably a little bit of a different story where you're not seeing the same densities where that, that likely were there in the past. Um, but, um, but, but in the forested area, it's, it's fairly comparable. Right, right. Now, um, we, we've obviously got a pretty good idea of, of how you guys, uh, some of the process of your studies here and the collaring and a bit of the, the wolf process as well. Uh, it's all very dynamic and you, you got lots of stuff going on and um, lots of moving parts here. Lots of data, lots of collection, lot, and over... Uh, uh, a broad area too. What are what are some of the your focuses on uh, in the study here? Like you you said, you're you're taking a few samples from these these moose. Is there is there what what are the the main focus points and and what are you trying to um, determine from from all this data that you're collecting? So, I guess the the larger kind of questions that we're trying to answer are, you know, what are the, what are the impacts of all these moving parts, as you mentioned, on uh, the relationship between moose and wolves in this area is kind of just the the breakdown of it all. So um, one thing that we're kind of, or I guess what I'm specifically maybe looking at right now and the questions that I'm trying to answer is um, how do moose and wolves separately interact with roads, for example, um, compared to other linear features in the area. So, um, one thing that I'm kind of finding there is that uh, the level of human activity that's associated with these linear features um, really influences whether or not the species uh, that we're looking at will actually interact with that linear feature. So will it be close to it? Um, Will it move faster in the vicinity of that linear feature? And so um, one of the things that we're noticing is that both wolves and moose avoid areas near highways across the board uh, pretty much. So that's a pretty clear um, a pretty clear pattern that we've noticed. But then depending on uh, the species, for example, like wolves will maybe be closer to like secondary roads. So things like, uh, you know, quadding or snowmobiling trails, um, whereas moose will select to be a bit closer to like old logging roads in the area um, where wolves and humans both aren't. So we're kind of starting to untangle um, exactly how the relationship between those two animals uh, is maybe being influenced by different factors of, across the landscape. Um, and then for Danielle's stuff, I don't know if you want to jump in there with maybe some of the samples. 
Hang on sure. a second there, yeah. Danielle. I just want to ask Katrine one more question before we carry on okay, here yeah. about the, the linear features. And, and we, you know, you just spoke on a few of them there, but when, you, when you're talking about linear features, what, uh, what is in that, what is that blanket or what does that cover? Uh, so I think in like the broadest terms, it's really uh, any kind of human-made structure that creates a long cleared section across the landscape. So it can include different levels of roads. It can include, um, you know, hydro lines or right of ways. It can include uh, pipelines, seismic lines, if those exist within the region, uh, which they don't in our study site, but there's a lot of work coming out of Alberta that looks um, more explicitly at, you know, pipelines um, out there. Um, but then in our study, we also do include uh, waterways, rivers, or like the edge of lakes as kind of a comparison, which would maybe act as like a natural linear feature that already exists um, within like a, a pristine landscape. Uh, so we're kind of looking at across the board, a, a bunch of different types of, of linear features. Cool. Sorry, Daniel, go ahead with uh, your portion there, buddy. Oh yeah, no, no problem. The, uh, so you you mentioned like samples that we collect at, at these sites so so if when, when we go to these wolf clusters uh Moscow and Katrina and I go out there and we investigate and we find that uh a certain animal was eaten by wolves whether they killed it or whether they're scavenging on, on an already dead animal um we, we take a certain amount of samples you know we take uh hair samples for example of like for example if it, if it is a moose there so we take a hair sample of the moose and with that, we can identify, we can look at a few different things, but one of the things we can look at is, uh, is uh, uh, the cortisol level within the hair. And what that does is that when we look at cortisol level within the hair, you're really looking at, um, it, it, it's, it's kind of a way to look at chronic stress. So what, 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 we're, what we mean by that is like, you, you know, chronic stress as in, is the animal stressed over a long period of time? And, and when, when an animal is stressed, it, it, uh, will, the body will give out cortisol and that gets incorporated into the tissues that are, are, are being, uh, uh, that, that, that are developing at the time. So, so during that period of hair growth, which takes time over, you know, it's over weeks and months, um, if an animal, if a moose is, is really stressed, it, it secretes cortisol and that gets incorporated into the hair. So then we can look at the hair and look at measure the, the amount of cortisol within the hair and, and kind of compare it to other animals and see if, um, see if the, the cortisol level is higher in animals that are killed by wolves versus animals that are not killed by wolves. Um, that are, you know, or other sources of mortality, or even just wool, uh, moose that are, that haven't died, you know, that are still alive. So we could look at that. So that's a way to kind of determine, that's one way to determine if uh, wolves are selecting for um, a certain part of the moose population. So whether it's old, young, sick animals. Um, uh, so, so we look at that. Um, we take uh, marrow samples. So the, uh, when we look at mammals, including moose, uh, one of the last fat reserves that are used within the body is the fat within the marrow. So what that tells you is that the animal, if, if an animal 
has very little fat content within the marrow, uh, that means that the animal is in very poor condition. Uh, if, if there is still some fat in the marrow, it doesn't necessarily mean that the animal is in good condition. It just means that it's not in very poor condition. So that's another way of looking at it as well. Um, we look at, we collect teeth to look at the age of the animals that the, the wolves are taking. Um, so all of that information, among other things, we do collect other samples as well. And, and to look at, you know, whether there's certain parasites within that animal that made it more susceptible uh, to, to getting caught by wolves. And, and so we take all that information to try and, so part of what we're hoping to find out is, is really kind of hammering or, or really determining what, what moose are wolves selecting. Are they selecting for the sick? Are they selecting for the old? Are they selecting for the healthy in some, in some cases? So it's um, so trying to determine that, and, and that has, and that kind of gives you a sense of the the dynamic and, and the potential impact of predation on a prey population. So um, it uh, so so that's part of what we're uh, what we're looking at is is like what moose are they taking? Because that, that's important. It's not just okay they're taking a moose. That, that that's one thing, but it's also important to determine what moose they are taking. Because if they're taking a moose that was just about to die anyways, because it had brainworm or because it was, you know, injured, then uh, the effect on the population is different than if they're taking a healthy moose that would have otherwise survived, right? Right. So th th that's very important to figure out. It's not just how many moose they're taking, but what, what moose they are taking in that population. Right. In your, in your sample size, have you been able to determine anything? Uh, so, so far, so we're still we're still going through that data right now. So unfortunately, I don't really have much, but but we do have some preliminary results. So so to give you an example, and this is some work that was done by uh, in collaboration with another student um, uh, a few years back. But but just looking at comparing, for example, the both the cortisol levels. So so looking at in hair of moose that were uh, killed by hunters and killed by wolves. And the same thing looking at the, the, the marrow, uh, the fat marrow content of moose killed by wolves versus uh, a moose killed by hunters. And, and, and what, what we see is actually um, the moose that are killed by wolves have very, uh, have lower fat content in, in, the, in the marrow and have higher stress level, chronic stress levels. Um, whereas uh, the moose that are taken by hunters have lower chronic stress levels and higher fat content. Hmm. So what, what that kind of shows seems to indicate is that, you know, moose and wool, uh, I mean, uh, wolves and hunters are probably selecting for different types of animals on the landscape, which Kind of, it, it, it kind of makes sense because you know if, if you're if you're a hunter and you see like a, a sick looking moose, probably less likely to want to shoot that moose. Right. But if you're a pack of wolves, that's the moose you're, you're want to get because that's a, probably an easy kill. Right? Yeah, that's interesting. That it almost like, I mean, I guess I guess you'd really have to dive into a little bit more to see how sick these animals actually were or like how 
how bad they were off, but it almost seems like maybe wolves have less of an impact overall on a population than, than one might think. Yeah, it could. It, it, it really depends. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's never as, and that's the thing, it's never as easy as we hope it is. It's not just the amount of moose that wolves are taking. It's more, it, it's more than that, right? So in some cases, wolves may not have much of an impact. But, but in other cases, they can, especially in a smaller population, when numbers or a smaller population or, or a population that has declined. And, and in some cases, you know, they may still be hunting at the same, you know, they still require the same amount of meat, uh, whether there's, you know, uh, X amount of, uh, whether there's, there were little or, or, or more moose in the area than before. Um, they still require the same amount of meat. So once when the population of moose goes down, that's when the uh, the risk of predation having a greater effect becomes a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why it's you know you have to look at predation, but then you have to look at all the other things too. Yeah, like, you know, disease of parasites, uh, hunter kills. You know, all those all those those things kind of play into how what kind of effects it may have on, on the population. Quick question for you too. You kind of, you just said uh, it all, or they eat the same amount of meat or whatever you said. So how much meat, how much does a wolf eat? How much does a pack eat? Like I know, um, you know, like you're saying they'll kill a moose and they'll just eat until it's gone. But how many times do they do that? Like how often do they eat? Um, I don't recall off the top of my head. And, and maybe Katrina, you remember like the, the exact amount that they eat on, on a daily basis. But but one of the things with, with wolves is that it's um, it, it's often kind of a feast famine type of diet where they, they don't de eat every day for the most part. So so they'll they'll especially when when, when they're targeting primarily moose um, or, or larger prey, is that they'll eat a lot for you know for a day or two and then in some cases, they, they you know they may not eat for for a few days, up to a week, or even more, and until until they make another kill, right? So, um, but 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 that depends. In, in, in some cases, they may eat on a daily basis, especially if they're going after beaver, where in an area where there is a lot of beaver, they, they could be eating on a more regular basis. But but that really depends on the season and, and what they're going after and, and how successful they are in, in catching prey uh, within that particular area. So. I don't know if you had anything to add to that, Katrine, or? No, not, nothing that I am 100% certain on, but I think something around like 2.5 to 5 pounds seems to jump to mind of like within a, within a single meal is how much a wolf could, could eat. Um, but I'm sure it varies depending on, yeah, like Danielle said, what, what they're eating and what time of year it is and what they need that, uh, what they need that sustenance for. Right. Interesting. Um, part of me is almost wondering if if wolves actually play a big part in in uh, the um, reducing the spread of disease, almost. But I guess a lot of factors would come into play there with population size and stuff. But if they're taking out the animals that are more sick, you got to think that having a healthy wolf population also um, helps that reduce the spread a little bit of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of, I mean, there, there's a reason why there's a reason why there's predators and preys. 
mm-hmm. uh, prey species out there. I mean, they all kind of have their role. And, um, and, and, and I, I think kind of generally speaking, um, uh, when, when one of the things that we often think about, um, uh, we often hear about or when we're talking about uh, a system where it's, you know, predators and prey, whether it's, you know, moose and wolves, we often think about them and kind of, okay, well, this is what is happening at this per- current period in time. But the thing is, is that it, it's quite dynamic, right? So it's it's always evolving. So what's happening, you know, at a certain time, that that it, it could shift, um, uh, you know, in five, 10 years for whatever reason, whether that's because of, you know, you have, you bring in a, a, a disease in there or whether it's, you know, um, whether it's climate change and and how that kind of affects the distribution of other prey. So all of a sudden, in this area, there wasn't this particular prey species. Now there's an additional prey species. So that kind of changes the whole dynamic. And so it has to find kind of a new balance. And and so it's, it's one of those things where predators like wolves have their role within the ecosystem in terms of kind of you know it's kind of a check and balances in terms of you know kind of equaling themselves off and and that balance can be tilted one way or another when we change things whether it's natural changes or it's human changes and that's kind of where i think katrine's work is really super interesting because it's starting to look at a little bit more deeper into at least one of the changes Mm -hmm. that that occurs on the landscape in some places, you know, occurring, you know, a lot and, and with these linear features, whether it's roads or trails or something like that. And, and how the, those changes that we as humans do on the landscape may impact that, that dynamic. Yeah. That's, that's kind of interesting. It's one thing you don't really think about too much. Um, or I'm sure lots of people don't is like maybe the, the environmental impact from like a, um, a footprint standpoint, isn't that huge on something, but when you're, putting a linear feature through an ecosystem how that might actually have a bigger effect on on uh on that ecosystem and you see you see it a lot in the north with like whether it's like uh, exploration like grids or drilling or whatever it may be it it seems to be all over the place so definitely an important area to be looking into if it's it's going to be more and more prominent throughout the the wild there and and i think I was ju- I was just going to add one last thing about that, and and and, and please jump in, Katrine, if if if, uh, if you want there. But the um, I, I think that the important thing with that too to think about is we often think about you know one change on a landscape, and we we focus on that one change. Like let's say for example we punch in a road. Okay, so what is the effect of that particular road? But the thing is, is that that particular road may not just on its own change that dynamic but it's kind of the effect of this road and then that trail and then that hydro line or or whatever it is you know it's it's like you have to look at it all kind of together and that's kind of where we we often get focused on single things but it's really kind of the all things together then then you, you that you have to look at and then say okay that one particular feature may not have an, an impact, but if you look at all the things together, mm-hmm. it may actually have an impact on the on, the, on that on that dynamic. Yeah, yeah, almost like the the straw that breaks the camel's back. 
possibly mm-hmm. wild um so we've had a pretty good look into into all the stuff here what what are some of the the long term we, we've spoken a, a bit about like the the short-term results that that you guys have kind of come up with what are some of the long-term goals with uh with your studies here um I guess, yeah, kind of as we've been talking about, there's a lot of moving parts. And so I think ideally at the end of this, we'd be able to kind of have a a pretty good picture of how each of those impacts um, kind of maybe on their own or together are are affecting wolves and moose and their relationship within this region. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, if we can kind of have a better understanding of, for example, how maybe uh, linear features on the landscape are influencing where both predators and prey are kind of interacting or maybe uh, choosing to be on the landscape and how that's altering the dynamic and then bringing in some of this uh, prey health um, data to kind of understand, okay, so if we know where predators are on the landscape, we know where prey are on the landscape, um, what's then influencing uh, what animals are killed and taken off of the landscape and and how that maybe has broader implications for like the long-term health of both of these populations. Interesting. Daniel, you have anything to add? Yeah, and one thing that, that we talked a little bit about um, uh, before, but but um, in the Katrine mentioned about the the importance of uh, of beavers uh, as a prey species, especially you know come springtime and then into the summer and then into the fall. Um, for a lot of these packs in uh, in our study site. Um, one of the things that that hope to untangle as well is 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 kind of the effects of of having uh, of these different prey species and how they may kind of indirectly affect each other. So, so what what makes a pack decide to go after beavers versus a moose, and what kind of impacts does that have on on moose, for example? Uh, so. So does so we could kind of look at it from two different ways in terms of like okay so so now we've we found that these packs of wolves rely quite heavily on beavers when the ice starts to thaw. So what does that mean for moose then? Does that mean that wolves are then kind of diverting diverting their attention to beavers? So that means less pressure on moose. So that's a good thing, or does that mean that? when we look at kind of the long-term uh when we look at the long-term dynamic of of wolves and and moose and white-tailed deer and beaver in the area if moose populations are declining for whatever reason um well then does that mean that because wolves are are um are preying on beavers quite heavily during the summertime they don't have to rely on, on, on moose uh, and so it keeps the the wolf nut numbers up at a level where they may have a start having a little bit more of an impact on the moose population so it kind of supports keep keeps those uh, wolf numbers up mm-hmm. so it's kind of two different ways of looking at it so trying to tease that out and, and trying to figure out like why it is that they're you know wolves are, are selecting for for beavers versus versus moose and and, and trying to figure out um, what kind of impacts that may have on, on, on each other. Yeah. Cool. Um, Sheldon, you have anything, uh, you want to add to this right now? Uh, not really. I want to add to it. I, 
it's been a super interesting conversation and um i think i've told chase about it before i've been i watched uh this arctic wolf documentary like a month ago i think it was called white wolves and uh it was about denning and and some of their kills and stuff so i always found uh the way wolves uh interact with each other and and throughout the ecosystem very interesting so thank you very much for coming on because i've had a blast i got uh i got one little addition here to the to the end of this podcast before we wrap things up and and uh i always enjoy talking to people who who like who are immersed in the in the like wilderness world and um i often find that like the more time people spend out outside in the woods or around that the more cool stories they might have you know when you spend a lot of time in the woods you see stuff that other people don't see or or you pay attention differently as well. So um, what is your uh, most unique memory or experience that you guys have had so far in the, in the woods? Is there any, any of that stand out for you? I have one, but, but go ahead if you want, Katrine. No, you go ahead. I'll, I'll think of, I'll try and think of a good one. Okay. Well, well there, there's a lot, there's a lot to, uh, to choose from, but, but I think one of my, one of the most interesting ones um that I that that I that I keep remembering thinking about is the this was about five years ago and I think it was like two or two or three years within in within this project and we were um we try and avoid going to uh to denning sites um if if we can. Uh so when we visit wolf clusters we try and avoid denning sites just because we found that um if we do visit a denning site, typically the wolves will then move their den to a different denning location, which which they do typically on a couple occasions in our study site, they do move their den uh, on, a, uh, on average a couple of times during the denning season, uh, regardless of whether we visited the den or not. But, um, but anyways, we just try and limit the amount of disturbance that we, like we don't want to impact their behavior if, if we, if, uh, if we, uh, if we don't have to, right? So in this particular case, this was a, a smaller pack of about the five, six wolves and and it was during a denning season. And uh, they they had a den that they had been to for, for a few weeks. And, and we know that because there's just a lot of locations in one, in one area and they just keep on coming back. So they go out, they go hunt and they come back to this location and they'll be here for a bit. And then they go back and hunt and they come back all the time. And uh, so I, I figured that they were still at their den, but, but I, I visited a cluster away from there. Um, but turns out this was a new den that they had just moved to. And so it was a, it was a new cluster, but it was, it was a, a new den that they had just moved to. But I didn't know that at the time. So I get to this, uh, to this beaver pond. Are you on foot at this point, I'm assuming? Yeah, I'm on foot. So I had to hike in a few kilometers in. And then, so I'm, I'm on foot and I, I buy this beaver pond and I see this beaver kind of swimming back and forth. And, and then I, I look at the beaver lodge and I'm like, I'm looking at it. I'm like, there's a hole in the top of the beaver lodge. Well, that's strange. And so I didn't really think much of it. So that's where the cluster was. I'm like, okay, well, maybe they killed a beaver. So I, I looked at it for a while and I waited uh, I waited there for about 20, 30 minutes to, to just kind of kind of see, make sure there wasn't anything uh, that I that was missing. And, and because one of the things that we found was that 
a lot of our wolves use abandoned beaver lodges uh, as um, as their denning site. Hmm. So they, they they will use like an area where the, the pond has dried out, um, but they will use the lodge beaver lodge as as their their den site. No kidding. So, but but this was an active, what appeared to be an active beaver lodge. So I was like, okay, well we haven't come across this. So I just waited to, to look, but then after a while, I was like, okay, well, it doesn't seem to be any activity. So I walked on the beaver dam, went over to the lodge, and when I was about, I was about a couple meters away from the from the beaver lodge, and all of a sudden, this this wolf jumps out of the beaver lodge, and like I, it scared me. Like like I I didn't know what to do. Like I, I jumped back. The wolf is running one direction, and so like I'm stepping away, and uh, and. Uh, so I felt bad because I had disturbed the, you know, the, the female that was that was in there. And sure enough, I, I just took a quick peek inside the beaver lodge, and there were, uh, I think there were six or seven wolf pups in there. So I'm like, holy smokes! No kidding. But I, the the funny thing is, is that I was thinking about it, and it's uh, it's like that poor beaver. <laughs> <laughs> not only did it get it, it lose his home. But it uh, it's probably gonna be lunch any yeah. minute now or any day, <laughs> so it, it loses its home and then it's probably gonna become lunch. It, it probably it, the wolves probably should have done it the other way around. Probably probably we should have taken the beaver out and then take its its house. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of an interesting one. They're they're keeping them for some uh, some reassurance for that day that they go out hunting and they don't bring anything home. <laughs> Katrine, what do you what do you have? You have anything interesting to share? Um, oh, there's just, yeah, I think kind of just what you mentioned, like being out in the woods, it just, it gives you a really unique perspective on, you know, what, what those animals might be thinking or the reasons why they're making the decisions that, that they are. So I think just being out there uh, to begin with, is just gives you a really good perspective uh, that, you know, when you're sitting back at your desk, unfortunately, which is most of my time now, uh, you can kind of reflect on those experiences and think, okay, yeah, maybe this is, maybe this is why they're doing what they're doing, but um i mean it's always exciting when you when you go to a, a kill site it's always the, mo- the most interesting of the the spots that you end up and i just re- distinctly remember there was one uh helicopter day that so we were out doing uh, cluster investigations in the helicopter which uh, is always for me a bit more stressful because you've got a uh, pretty limited time at every spot and there was just one site that we went to and we're searching and we're searching and we're searching and we can't find anything and i'm stressed out because I'm thinking, okay, we got to collect something here because, you know, we've, you know, we've just flown here uh, in the helicopter. We can't find anything, maybe a couple of beds. So I'm feeling a bit discouraged. And then we go to our next site, uh, which is, you know, maybe a couple hundred, uh, let's say 800 meters away about that. And it's in the middle of this really dense swamp. And so we're, you know, trucking through the woods, trying to like get to the cluster as best we can. Uh, I'm rushing because I'm thinking, I've wasted all this time already and we end up finding uh, a bear kill. Uh, so it was a mm. young juvenile black bear that had been killed and it all just kind of clicks in my head thinking, of course, they were here first because we had the dates associated with these clusters. Um, they killed this young black bear and the other site was a resting site. And so it all kind of just made sense to me in that moment. Oh, no wonder we didn't find anything at the other site. Like these two places were very linked. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had killed this bear and then they had gone to the other site to rest. And so just being, if, you know, if I hadn't been there, we would never have known what that other site was. Um, and so just kind of, yeah, being able to like 
actually physically see those two spots, you yeah. kind of understand the figures a little bit better. So yeah, you're, you're, put, you're putting the, the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Very cool. Well, this has been an awesome hour and a half speaking with you guys and I certainly learned a whole bunch. And um, I'm interested to see uh, where what, uh, what you guys figure out all at the end of it and hopefully gives us a better look into how the, the prey-predator dynamics are at work and, and maybe uh, help out some, some moose populations here in the province as well. Absolutely. Well, thanks again. Thanks for having us. It's been uh, it's been great to chat about the project. Yeah, absolutely. That's episode 101, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Um, before we get let you let you go here, quick, we got Mr. Grant here giving you a quick store update. Before we get to let you go, before we get to that let was you a good go, one. does that make sense? I don't know. Probably. I'm just not I'll into just, it. Just start my own dictionary or my, my <laughs> own form of language. Store update. First, first, first things first. Um, thanks to uh, Promo Time in Nipwa and Annette. You might have heard us say Annette a few times, but she's been uh, helping us out there quite a bit, trying to get our clothing um, ordered and, and in our store. There's been a lot of shipping and um, a lot of stuff that's like on back order because of COVID production or, issues. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's getting bad to like to the point even like our blaze. We have like new blaze orange hoodies in, and the double XLs were back ordered for like a month. So it's like, well, that kind of sucks because there's, you know, quite a few bigger individuals out there that like to, or not even bigger individuals, but like to layer up, right? It means I don't get one. Yeah. You don't get I one. I don't get one. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, huge shout out to Promo. But yeah, in our store, we got blaze orange hoodies. We're getting a whole new order of crew neck. So anybody that's looking for like that forest green small, I know I've had a lot of texts and emails that were sold out and we should get more. So every size in our crew necks are going to be, uh, available here hopefully in the next few weeks we've got three three or four toques coming out i can't remember um, all our hats are going to be in stock for christmas time um what else did i order some, some Ke- new style toques as well new style toques yeah. yeah yeah we got a couple new ones coming in so i'm super excited to get those in and get pictures of them and show everyone uh all that new stuff and we also got some more youth hats coming in um i believe a navy blue color too so we're gonna, I think we're going to have a few black left and a few pink and then these navy blue ones as well. So if you're looking to get a hat for your kid. But yeah, if you want to get Christmas presents um, through us, I would suggest doing that ordering right away quick because, like I said, some of this stuff might be back ordered for a bit. But if you want your name on something, we can hopefully get it for you. Um, but other than that, yeah. That's all we got for the store. You could literally uh, do all your Christmas shopping right now. If you go to the description in our in, in this podcast episode and, uh, you know, get yourself some wool love, a pit barrel for your, yeah, uh, for your dad, whoever. grandpa, grandma. Yeah. I hunter subscription for the hunter, fisher, outdoorsman in your life. And uh, Heights Archery, you know, get you know, over to the website, yeah. order up whatever you need. And then uh, Panoramic Store. Yeah, there you go. For, for your clothing needs. So Christmas shopping done right now. Go do it. Get to it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for listening, folks. Keep your knives sharp. Keep your lines tight and shoot straight. Do you want to do one? No. <laughs> Have I ever? <laughs>